0: Welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus Who live and work in the city of Glasgow And it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives So as well as listening to this podcast We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning Or get involved in one of our missional communities Which are across the city throughout the week Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Palm Sunday, Um, as Jacqueline has already mentioned, the start of Holy Week, uh, the beginning of the final act um, of the story of Jesus and his ministry on earth as he journeys to the cross on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I don't know about you, but I find the story of Palm Sunday, I find it a little bit of an odd story. Um, It's a bit odd, isn't it? Jesus entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It's a bit weird. And if you're like me and you've grown up around church, you've heard this story plenty of times. There have been plenty of Palm Sundays. You might have even waved some palm branches in church. Um, If you went to an Anglican church or sometimes other churches do this, they have those little crosses made out of palm leaves Um, And there's all this kind of festivity and celebration around it. And sometimes I think we can almost lose a sense of that. It's just a really odd, strange story. And increasingly for me, strange stories are becoming my favourite kind of stories. We've been in the book of Revelation over the last sort of couple of months... Um, if you were around last week, you remember Stephen was talking in Revelation about all these crazy images and metaphors and symbols going on in the book of Revelation. This vision of a cosmic battle between beasts and and weird creatures and just this really imaginative imagery. And it sounds almost like it comes more from the pen of someone like Neil Gaiman or, or a David Lynch film or something like that. It's very weird, very strange. And as we've been discovering in Revelation, all of these strange images, um, they actually point towards something of a deeper spiritual reality. That all the strangeness is really, there's so much more going on underneath that sometimes we just can't wrap our modern materialist minds around things. Well, Palm Sunday, I think, isn't quite as spectacular as all, of, as all of that, but it's still an odd story. There's still some strange things going on that when you pull back, when you, when you kind of look at the story again with some fresh eyes, you think there's some really strange things. Why does Luke go to such pains to record where Jesus was? We get this all sorts of, in all sorts of places in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, when we're looking at this, the life of Jesus. There's all these allusions as to where he was at what particular time. Why were these details included? Why does Jesus have these really specific instructions for his disciples? Why is he so adamant about riding a donkey of all things? Why can't he just walk into the city like a normal person? And then we're given the detail of what happens. The crowd's turning up and and exclaiming and celebration. And it seems like a bit odd that we're given such few details in comparison. This is the climax of the story, the main event And so it's easy for us with our modern minds, I think, just to dismiss these things as kind of quirks. These are just the things that the gospel writer put in and the quirks of the writing and we just kind of accept them and move on. But really I wonder if there's something so much deeper going on. My mind wonders, what spiritual reality are these strange and unusual details pointing towards? And I want to wonder this morning about how this story is demonstrating to us the reality that Jesus is king over all the universe. And that he's telling us this by riding a donkey. So when you think about kingship in the Bible, I wonder where your mind goes to. Well, I'll answer for you because it's not that kind of interactive sermon. But um, I usually think of Saul. I usually think of David, Solomon, and then a bunch of other kings that no one ever really knows the name of. And when I think about kingship, I usually think about how Israel had a point of time in its history where they really wanted a king. They really wanted to have a king like every other nation in the world. They wanted to be one of the cool kids. And so whenever I think about kingship in the Bible, we have this narrative, this story of God giving them a king, and it feels like God's the parent who's just letting the toddler go and do the thing that the toddler really wants to do, and just to see what happens, just to see if the toddler comes running back with the skinned knee or crying because they feel sick because they ate too much chocolate. And it's it's, it's that sense of God just giving them a bit of leash. Let them have a king and see what happens. And so we tend to think of kingship as this idea that people wanted, but that wasn't really God's idea. And I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if the idea of kingship goes right the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of our story, to the Garden of Eden. I wonder if kingship is actually God's idea. And if you think about it, he kind of hands the idea of ruling down to Adam and Eve in the Garden when he tells them to rule over all of creation. And when he tells them to rule over creation in Eden, what does that mean? It means to cultivate, to tend, to steward, to care, to nurture, to produce, to create. And so God's, in that light, God's plan is for man to rule. But the way he intends man to rule looks a lot different from the way that it turned out. Things didn't quite go according to that plan. And I think we understand that all too well today when we look at the state of leadership and rulership in the world. And I think humans have understood this all too well throughout history. Again, we've been looking at Revelation and this symbol of the beast. And this symbolises, we've been told, um, this symbol of Rome, of Babylon, of empire, of imperial power and raw might. Rulership of this kind is about taking it's about seeing something, it's about taking it for oneself. Vladimir Putin sees the fertile lands of Ukraine and believes it belongs to an imperial and everlasting Russia. And so he's seen it and he's decided, I'm going to try and take that for myself. That's the dynamic that we see of power playing out in the world, to see, to reach out and to take. When he, when he, Wiki, I think I've got the Latin pronunciation right, a famous saying attributed to Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. And that corruption of rulership, of kingship, begins at the fall when Adam and Eve see the fruit, they reach out and they take it in order to consume it. And so in that moment, God's idea of kingship, God's idea of rulership, is perverted from a place of cultivating, stewarding, into taking and consuming. And so this is the pattern that we see then, right from the fall in the garden. We see it again and again and again. In the book of Deuteronomy, in a set of speeches or sermons that Moses delivers to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, we find these words. When you enter the land your Lord God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So these are Moses' words to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. This is way before the Israelites actually ask for a king in the first place. So there's the sense in which kingship has been bubbling under the surface for a long time. But note that what the king has to do, or rather what the king hasn't, uh, mustn't do, he mustn't acquire a great number of horses for himself, He mustn't take many wives for himself, and he mustn't accumulate lots of wealth for himself. And I'm reading those, and I'm thinking to myself, what are those? Power, sex, and money. Instead, what must the king do? When we carry on reading this uh, a bit further down. He's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the left or the right. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So this is God's idea of what the king should look like. It's really quite a remarkable vision of kingship and leadership when you think about the time that these words were recorded. Think about it. The king must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And I think, would our leaders, some of our leaders today, not see themselves above the law? There's that sense in which rulers and leaders will see themselves as above the people that they rule. And you have to remember that in the ancient world, when these words were written, kings, queens, emperors, they, were, they, were, they had like divine status. They were considered either gods, next to gods, or sons, daughters of gods. One of Caesar's titles was literally son of God. But here God's vision of kingship goes against this. And so it's a really remarkable idea, if we think about it, that this was laid down right there and then. And even today with our ideas of democracy and equality, it makes you realise just where these ideas come from in the first place. And so as we know, the story of Israel's kings doesn't turn out that way. And Israel's kings don't live up to the standard of what God intends. King David's rule is an interesting one because... For the large part, he's faithful to God. He's called a man after God's own heart, the only character in the Bible described in this way. And so it seems for Israel that David might actually fulfill the hopes for Israel of a king who was promised, who might lead the people of Israel into the kingdom of God and bring about this renewal, this incredible vision. But David himself falls foul of this temptation and perverts what is expected of his position. And we see his story play out again with this incredible accuracy to this pattern of the way that kings and rulers fall. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David sent messages to take her and she came to him and he lay with her. David saw... He reached out and he took for himself. Listen to this account of the wealth and the power of King Solomon, the successor to David. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his, his wives led him astray. And so I wonder, did, did Solomon, was he really aware of these words of warning from Moses in Deuteronomy, because here he is, his heart becoming turned away from God as he yearns for more, just expressly going against the very commandments that God laid down. He mustn't acquire a great number of horses for himself. Oops. He mustn't take many wives for himself. And I think Solomon, he kind of takes the biscuit on that one. He mustn't accumulate lots of wealth for himself. And I think you might say that being wealthier than all the kings of the earth is pretty wealthy. Interesting side note, in the the light of Revelation last week, we're told that the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly in tribute was 666 talents. Make of that what you will, read into that if you want, I thought that was interesting. But over time, Solomon's heart turns away from God completely in this process of seeing, desiring, reaching, and taking for himself. And so king after king in Israel's history is raised up. The hopes of Israel are raised up. Maybe finally this will be the king that lives up to God's idea of kingship and will bring about the rule of God's kingdom on earth. And only time after time that hopes are dashed. And so back to Palm Sunday. The people of God, the people of Israel, at the time of Jesus, they're still holding on to that idea of a king, believe it or not. There's been a turbulent time in Israel's history throughout the the whole Old Testament. I'm not going to go through it all. It's long and it's complicated and it's got lots of different parts and there's lots of kings and lots of, I think, one queen maybe. And there's an exile and there's judges and there's prophets and it's long and complicated, but they're still holding out hope for this king. And it's in this context that this expectation of a king, of a messiah, that Jesus enters the scene on a donkey. So what was one of those strange details about this story that we mentioned? Luke is quite deliberate in his recounting of where Jesus is coming from as he approaches Jerusalem. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives he sent on two of his disciples and they go on to get the donkey. And so we can read that with our modern mindsets and think, well, that's a nice little geographic detail. That's where Jesus was at this time. If you're following along in your little map at the back, sometimes that they put in the back of your Bible, you know that's where he was at this point. Good, good to know. And it is good to know that. But the reality is, is that there's something Really important, even in this small detail, that Jesus is saying about himself. He's enacting and he's unraveling something about himself to those who are watching him, to those who are listening to him. The Jews would have been conscious of the words of the prophet Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple after Israel had fallen and after Israel had sinned. And the, the glory of the Lord leaves via the eastern gate. And then later, Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of the Lord returning. And it says, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. He said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. And so you're probably already putting two and two together. Where might Bethphage, Bethany and the Mount of Olives be in relation to Jerusalem while they're in the east? Jesus is deliberately entering Jerusalem from the east. This isn't just a small detail, this isn't a little tidbit of information that can uh, just gives us a bit of scene setting, a bit of context. Jesus' actions, they're deliberate, they're considered. He's saying something about himself. He's creating a consciousness for the people around him that he's proclaiming a deep and profound spiritual reality that he himself is God's glory come to take his rightful place on the throne. Jesus is being very clear about who he is. But the thing is are those who are witnessing these events, are they going to accept that? Are they going to accept him? And for a great deal of people, the king, the Messiah, they're expecting this, this powerful ruler. And the context for the Jews at the time was that they were under occupation of the Roman Empire, the evil empire. And so they would have been expecting a king who would come with a show of force, who would have power, maybe someone who would lead a revolt, who would have an army. But how does Jesus enter the city? He enters on the back of a donkey, a young cult, never before ridden. I'm sure... Many are aware, when, when Roman generals or when kings or when rulers in ancient times, when they entered a city, whether this was their own home city or whether this was a new city that they'd recently conquered, they would enter the city atop a, a great and magnificent war horse. And they would lead a procession of, of, of troops and, and, and an army in all of its splendour and its might. And there would just be this procession of riches and the wealth of the conquered lands that they would be putting on show But Jesus rides the lowliest animal that can be found. And it's an animal that's not even his. It's been borrowed. He's rented it for the afternoon. Hear the words of the prophet Zechariah. Again, words almost certainly ringing in the ears of the Jews that day. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we have this strange contradiction, this strange image, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey. And you see this deliberate subversion of power that Jesus is undertaking. Jesus is a king who would be victorious, but he wouldn't reach out and take it for himself as a show of force. He wouldn't come thundering with thousands of horses and chariots, but on the back of a young donkey. He wouldn't come displaying vast amounts of wealth on a street cobbled with silver and gold, but with a path lined by the cloaks of the poor. He wouldn't come attended and adorned by an entourage of wives and concubines, but with palm branches waving. So our understanding and our view of kingship has been tainted. Our view, perhaps, of rulers and monarchs, Today we have a, an interesting relationship, I think, in our day and age with power. I don't know if you are a fan of the royal family or, or, or loathe the royal family, but whatever your view, we have an interesting relationship now with, with, with symbols of power like that. And in our age of democracy and equality and ideas that permeate, permeate our culture, in some senses we're sceptical of these displays and shows of power. But our view of what makes a leader today can still be tainted by these same images of success, of wealth, of beauty, of status, of having all the smarts and the qualifications. But Jesus demonstrates what the kingly ruler ought to look like. And we have this beautiful thread being drawn for us all the way through the Bible, right from the beginning in Genesis. Through the Old Testament, through the history of Israel, the story of Israel, and it culminates in Jesus and his ultimate authority to sit on the throne. And at the start of Holy Week today, we know that Jesus is currently riding a road that will lead to a hill on Friday, where he would die a torturous death on the cross. And it seems really strange, doesn't it, that the week would begin with this moment of celebration, this moment of triumph for his followers. But how did the people who were waving palm branches and laying their cloaks heralding the coming of their king turn so suddenly over the course of the next few days? From our psalm read earlier, the stone the builders rejected. But now he has become the cornerstone. And it's interesting that on his cross Jesus is in fact declared king. And the one who would declare this fact is actually none other than a Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate. And what Pontius Pilate did was he put a sign over Jesus' head on the cross. And it was meant as ironic, a sense of irony, but was in fact declaring a truth so deep and so profound that I think Pilate inadvertently kind of becomes the first evangelist for Christ as king. A sign written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is not the king that the Jews were expecting. And I wonder, if you think about it, is it really the kind of king that you would expect, the kind of leader that you would expect to see? I think when we know the story, it's easy for us to say, yes, obviously, this is the king we're expecting to see. But is it really that obvious? A quote from... Historian Tom Holland, um, which I'll quote at length, but it's just it's so great to get us in that mindset of the picture of where these people would be seeing this image of Jesus on the cross. The border between the heavenly and the earthly was widely held to be permeable. In Egypt, the oldest of monarchies, kings had been objects of worship for unfathomable aeons. In Greece, stories were told of a hero god by the name of Heracles, a muscle bound monster slayer who, after a lifetime of spectacular feats, had been swept up from the flames of his own pyre to join the immortals. Among the Romans, a similar tale was told of Romulus, the founder of their city. Divinity, then, was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. To nail them to the rocks of a mountain, or to turn them into spiders, or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. That such a god of all gods might have had a son, and that this son, suffering the the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent? No more shocking a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemous, it was madness. One of the best things about Holy Week as we enter is it gives us a space to pause and really put ourselves in that narrative, to put ourselves in the shoes of those who lived through this story. When you see Jesus riding a donkey and dying on a cross, are you really thinking in that moment that you're looking at the king of the universe? But this is the king that Jesus is. This is the king that was promised right at the start, right when it was God's idea. A king who would see, but rather than see something to be conquered, would see something that he loved. A king that would reach out, but rather than reach out to take for himself, he would reach out a hand to heal. And as the sign says above his head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is who he is. And so we will reach out and invite him in again today. Why don't we pray together? and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus, would you open our eyes to see clearly for who you really are the King over everything, over creation over our lives, over the whole universe, everything material, everything immaterial. A king whose right and authority is so absolute that if we failed to recognise you as king, you say even the stones would shout out loud. Your throne not with might but on the back of a donkey being nailed to a cross, would you help us to see where we fail up fail to live up to that, that expectation, that kingly vision cast by the Father in the garden, where we see and where we take for ourselves, would you forgive us? We want to live in the light and the love of your kingdom, a place that is full of healing, that is full of light. Would you just come make yourself present among us, Jesus? we worship for who you are today.